Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Surviving Hard Times Podcast. I have John Shepard. He's a professor, uh, director of undergraduate programs for bioprocessing science, North Carolina State. I'm going to talk about his research. So, John, thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. If you would, tell me about your background and how you got to where you are today, and then we'll talk about your research. Okay. Well, I'm kind of an old guy, so I got, <laughs> I got quite a long background. But any event, so, you know, honestly, I never really thought I was going to be a professor. And I was, after I graduated with a master's degree, I was working for an organization in Canada called the National Research Council of Canada, which was a research-oriented, federally funded lab. And I got actually sent to Finland, believe it or not, on a kind of a, a working trip where I was learning some technology over in Finland. And I had a week at the end of my trip that I spent in a cabin on a lake with a, with a wood-burning sauna. And, and there I decided, gee, I think I want to be a professor. So for some reason, it hit me there. I had no, there was no power, no electricity or anything in there. So there's nothing to do but think. So anyway, I decided then, and so I went back to McGill University in Montreal and I got a PhD in chemical engineering. And from there, I first my first prof- job as a professor was also at McGill. It was in a different department. It was called the Department of Biosystems Engineering. And I worked there for 17 years. And I mainly, my research interests there were mainly focused on environmental issues, waste treatment, et cetera, from industrial waste processes. I was looking at acid mine drainage and various other things. Um, in treatment. But my love actually was brewing science. And so I was, after a while, I was able to finagle a bit of money to buy a pilot scale brewing system to go in the pilot plant there at McGill. And that kind of helped me attract some graduate, more graduate students. And and we started to do some projects on brewing science, specifically due to, with respect to biosensors and that kind of thing. And And anyway, What happened then was that there was a push on in Montreal to develop kind of a pharmaceutical center in the city to support what they hoped would be a burgeoning pharmaceutical industry in in Montreal. So I was sent by the dean of the college I was working for to to Ottawa to a conference on this particular topic. As it turns out, there was somebody from North Carolina State University there giving a talk about how they had the plans for building this pharmaceutical center, teaching center in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I met up with them afterwards over right. a beer. Oh, go ahead, yes. Yeah, so I just say I met up with them afterwards over a beer. And long to make a long story short, he invited me down as a visiting professor for a year uh, when they were starting up their facility. And while I was down here in North Carolina, 
essentially they offered me a full-time position to run the bioprocessing science program because there was two programs that were starting up. One was engineering, one was science. They offered me the science position. So I decided after a lot of wringing of my hands, et cetera, <laughs> to leave Montreal and, and come down here to North Carolina. And so now I've been here since 2006. And uh, one of the things I did is I brought my pilot scale brewery with me. And so I've been continuing some brewing research, but I've been doing some other things as well down here. And yeah, it's been great. So what, what are some of the, uh, the questions that you're trying to answer with your research at this moment? So I'm what you'd call a mature professor, a mature scientist. You know, I passed actually normal retirement age. So, so I don't really feel like I have any burning need to make any big discovery at the moment. I've, you know, what I was actually going to talk about a little bit, if it, I think this might be of interest to your listeners is is over the, my career, I've had three or four, maybe five kind of eureka moments in my research where you know, something's happened in my lab or in my one of my experiments that is really unexpected. And you're kind of like, wow, I didn't think that was going to happen. And, you know, they don't happen all that often, as I say, maybe four or five times over 35 years that's happened. Otherwise, research is kind of boring in a way. I mean, you're you're slogging forward a little bit at a time, you know, just incremental knowledge that that you know is for in a very specialized area. So, but when these eureka moments happen, is kind of exciting, and it really makes it all worthwhile when when that happens. So, as I say, I've had a few of those, and and it's it's kind of a you know, as I say, it makes it all worthwhile. So, I don't know if you want to if I could. You want me to describe one of them or two of them, or what, whatever? What well, do you tell think? me, tell me within um, within brewing science. You know, there's there's big breweries out there. You know, uh, I'm sure Guinness, Anheuser Busch, etc. How deep into the science of brewing are they, or are they just you know refining processes in a uh, like kind of a clinical sense? Clinical being the brewery. You know, do they have scientists and researchers usually on staff, or they're just optimizing the processes without relying on on basic science? Yeah, so good question. It's it's not a, a simple answer to that because first of all, you have to look at when you're talking about because the brewing industry has evolved a lot in the last hundred years. A hundred years ago, you know, the U.S. was just coming out of well, I guess we're just going into prohibition, not coming out of it, but you know, there was not a lot done, especially with regards to research in the U.S. at that time. You know, the brewing essentially is a European-based technology that uh, people brought over from Europe. And so they implemented the families that came and emigrated to the U.S. Essentially, were using technology developed in Europe. But so the, the science behind brewing started in the 19th century. Early to mid-19th century is when scientists, chemists, microbiology didn't really exist at that point yet. But people that were interested in biology started looking at the brewing process, specifically from the point of view of trying to improve the quality over time. So the, the problem was that beer spoiled very easily back, back then. And as a result, it really limited the export market for, for most breweries, because by the time it got to their destination, the, the beer was no good. So 
Quick question here. What what happens when beer spoils and how can you tell? Yeah, so depends what the cause of the of the spoilage is. So there are two main causes of beer spoilage. One is um, microbial contamination and the other is just oxidation. So microbial contamination usually results in a lot of off flavors, souring of the beer, and it just really makes the taste and aroma unpleasant. Oxidation of the beer is essentially a a staling reaction. And I think everybody has probably eaten stale bread or whatever, and it's kind of a cardboard sensation you get. And, And so the early brewing, they didn't realize how important it was to prevent contact of the beer with oxygen. Because once these oxidation reactions start, you literally can't stop them. They limit the life of the beer. And in the old days, when all the vessels were open and exposed to the air, beer really had a a life of a few weeks before it started to change um, flavor. And then, then when they started controlling the this exposure with closed vessels, it made a huge difference. And now they're able to do it, these big breweries anyway, are able to do it with such sophisticated equipment that that literally you're looking at six to 12 months before the beer starts to uh, lose quality. So so this quality control stuff, from a, you asked about the research done, that was the biggest thing the large breweries were able to do is they were able to refine the process in a way that they they now have a much more consistent and long-lasting product. The basics of the brewing process haven't really changed for a long time, but its attention to detail and the kind of equipment now that they use allows them to get this kind of consistency and, and longevity to the product. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What are the consistent metrics, taste, uh, volume, alcohol level? Like, What are the metrics? Well, yeah, so there's a lot of metrics. There's about 200 different components that contribute to aroma and taste in beer. Now, a lot of these components, a lot of those 200 things, people can't recognize what they are. And if they weren't there, they wouldn't know it. <laughs> so so there's only, you know, there's probably a couple of dozen really key flavor components that, that you have to worry about. But, you know, from the consistency point of view, you're looking at the flavor, the aroma, the mouthfeel, which is largely um, based on the level of carbonation of the beer um, and and things like uh, there's some chemicals, uh, components in the beer that also improve the mouthfeel. And also things like, you know, the oxidation of of some of these components, which say decreases the quality. So, I mean, if you're looking at the consumer's perspective on the quality, 
it's it's you know what you see is it cloudy is it clear does it smell nice does it keep ahead the foam layer is okay you know all these kind of combination of physical and and chemical things are what you like to to see consistent from batch to batch and over time with with any particular batch so so the big breweries have pretty well perfected that they're able to get a very consistent product as you say that has a pretty long shelf life now hmm, okay i mean it seems like the past 15 years there's a lot more flavors there's a lot more experimentation with beer there's a lot more kinds than i've ever heard of because i guess of all the microbreweries so like where is the industry going and what are these learnings doing for the new beer producers of today yeah so good question i think what you have to do uh, to answer that question is you have to look at what market segment you're you know you're really interested in because the the large breweries have quite a different kind of perspective on first of all how to make beer how to make money and what kind of market uh, segment they're they're really trying to get their product to appeal to compared to the craft industry which appeals to quite a different segment of the population so so if you're looking so if you're asking me where where is the mass produced highly consumed product that the large breweries make where is that going compared to where is the craft industry going those are two <laughs> quite different questions so what are you interested in me trying to give my opinion on which one well maybe a brief overview of both where are both going and then we'll choose which one to focus in on whatever one seems <laughs> to be more interesting Okay, so I'm not, you know, I'm not privy to all the boardroom discussions at uh, the big breweries, but I, all I can say is an observation of trends. And the observation of trends is that the big breweries are going to lighter and lighter products, that is towards lower alcohol, if not zero alcohol, very low hopping rates, which means that it's very easy to drink. So it's kind of, yes, it's still fermented, so it has more flavor than a seltzer, but their mass-consuming market is really after these very easy-to-drink light beverages. And I think that's where, with with little or no alcohol in them, and I think that's where where the big breweries are going with all sorts of artificial flavors added, what whatever, the, the, they don't really care about, you know, what a traditional beer contains anymore it's it's all about now they're in the general beverage market where they sell all sorts of things that can't even be considered beer so so wherever the money is that's where they're going to go and so that's that's the answer for i think for the large breweries uh, with respect to the craft industry the craft industry is always in a state of flux it you know has to respond to kind of changing tastes among their drinking um, segment, which is a relatively small population. I mean, can, can, uh, compared to the large, you know, mass market product, the craft industry is still, you know, still less than 20% of the total beer sold. So, so it's still, you know, it's a large, not saying it's insignificant, and it's a large, got a large dollar value to it. But if you look at individual breweries, the vast majority of individual breweries, uh, the craft industry, you know, make less than 10,000 barrels a year, whereas the large breweries are making 10 million barrels. So, 
you know, there's, it's a totally different kind of uh, situation. The craft industry is much more responsive to changes in tastes. And they, they have to be a lot more crafty about what they make. Right. right. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, it's, they're always looking for a new spin on it. I mean, they're looking for a new kind of taste experience, a new kind of um, something that they can say is different. The, even their labels are, are creative. I mean, they try and hook customers based on the name of their brewery or the artwork on their labels or, you know, whatever can make them stand out among literally thousands of craft breweries. Now, I mean, there's close to 10,000 in the U.S. So, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to differentiate your products when there's so many, so much competition. And especially, you know, during COVID, when, when the tap rooms essentially closed down and their only outlet was in the uh, grocery stores and, and, and bottle shops, you know, there was limited shelf space. So they, they have to differentiate and, you know, it's, it's tough keeping, keeping the customers because the craft customer really wants new experiences and it's not like in Europe where, you know, the, you, you get to like a particular beer and, you, and 90% of the beer you, you drink is that beer. Here, the craft, I think, drinker uh, moves around a lot. He tries a lot of different things. And, and so it's, a, it's always a moving target for them. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess it sounds like the big beer producers, they're just getting better and better and systematizing more and more and being more consistent because they make the same thing so many times. And then craft, they're looking for new all the time, but yet they have to maintain quality. But I guess people could expect there's going to be more variation in it. So it is, I guess, two different worlds, big time, right? Yeah. And and the consumer of the craft beer is is actually pretty forgiving on quality. I mean, a lot of times they only taste a particular beer once and, you know, they, whether it's good, consistent or not the next batch, well, they don't really know. And, and, you know, there's not the, the brand loyalty necessarily you see with the big breweries. So, yeah, so the, the quality, I mean, quality is a relative thing too. I mean, the, the craft industry really doesn't typically make a batch of beer they expect to be around in six months, they expect it to sell in a matter of weeks or, you know, maybe a month or so. And then they, then, you know, so there's, there's a constant turn, turnover of craft beer that, that doesn't require, honestly, the same kind of process perfection that you see in the, in the large breweries. Well, what's, what, so what's the innovation of today? Is it making new types of beer? Uh, it, I, I don't know. It's just making it completely consistent or last longer. Like, like what would what would be the industry's uh, biggest dreams? You know, huh. the craft beer industry and then the big beer industry. What would be the a dream scenario for them to happen? Well, you know, probably. You know, I'm just going out on a limb here because I, this is just my opinion. I have I have no inside knowledge on that. But from the from the big breweries' point of view, probably their dream would be to make a fully synthetic beer that they don't have to actually ferment. They don't have this biological variability and worry about propagating yeast and all this, that they can just throw together some chemicals and it's going to taste like just like beer and nobody's going to know the difference. I think that would be the ideal for the, for the, the large breweries. Okay. What about the, the craft breweries? What do you think would be a great scenario for them? Well, 
I guess the the best scenario for them would be if if a larger amount of the number of the population rejected the mass produced beverages that that are on the that are mostly on the grocery shelf now all these seltzers and and artificially flavored drinks and because i mean there're all these the you know the flavored waters and and the seltzers and and the essentially alcohol with alcohol and water with a little bit of flavoring all these kind of beverages are are eating into their market you know maybe it's just a passing fad that people are going to turn away from that but unfortunately you know marketing and and publicity and advertising means a lot here in the US market and and uh, most of the craft you know business cannot advertise they, they just don't have the have the means for for doing that so so how the the public perception of their product is is not manipulated like it is with these other beverages which is you know they're all associated with a particular lifestyle and and it it would seem that young people are going for all these other kinds of beverages so i think their dream would be that that a new generation of drinker comes along and and rejects all that commercial you know influence and and they go back to the basics and they want real beer again and uh you know the re- a real craft beer has to be made with with barley hops water and yeast and you know you put other stuff in it and it's, from their perspective it's not it's not a really a craft beer anymore so i think that would be their dream is that you know people reject all this all this new stuff and and come back to the to the basic traditional beers well where, i don't know but like where did the beers come from what are, what are used to make them so like hefeweizens versus like ipas versus stouts i don't know can you give like a brief tour of people that enjoy beer but maybe don't know much about it you know what all these kinds of beer are and what's used to make them and you know <laughs> where it stands out to you that's interesting not exhaustive but just like you know something general well i can give you an overview i you know that's a there's hundreds of styles of beer but yeah so basically if you're looking at traditional beer you know you have the ingredients of barley hops yeast and water and it's very it's variations of those ingredients that give you the different styles okay so the barley is malted and there's different ways of malting the barley that provides different flavors from the malted barley so you know if you cook it at high temperature it gets darker um so the the sugar gets caramelized you know so the darker stronger beers are with the roasted barleys and the other barleys uh that the the lighter barleys are used for the lager beers that are lighter colored and less flavored so so the the kind of barley malt you use and the quantity of barley malt you know gives you the sweetness and the color to the beer and then then you look at the hops and the hops traditionally is a bittering agent that gives you the the bitter character to the taste that is a complement to the residual sweetness in the beer so you have that kind of battle in your tongue between the bitterness and the sweetness and that what you know what characterizes beer flavor um hops more recently hops have also become very important from the aroma point of view and and the craft industry have used what's called this dry hopping technique where where the hops are actually added later in the process so that more of the aromatic material 
becomes part of the product rather than the bitterness. So you've got this really two kinds of hops. You have the bittering hops and the aromatic hops and, you know, how you use them in your process and the type of hops and the amount of hops affect that aspect to the, to the beer character and different styles of beer have certain standards for, for the, um, the kind of hops that are typically used and, and also, you know, the, the end results, which gives you a certain flavor profile in the beer. Um, now, you talked about the Hefeweizen. So sometimes there are so-called wheat beers as well. So not all beer is made with barley. Um, wheat is also a, a traditional ingredient. Could be malted or unmalted. Depends on, on the percentage of wheat that is used with with some barley, because usually it's, it's a mixture of wheat and barley if, if there is wheat uh, um, used. Um, and this contrasts, again, I say with the large breweries who, who use a lot of what are called adjuncts, which are not barley or wheat. Things like corn and rice are typically used uh, to substitute for the grain, barley, and, and wheat. So that gives a different kind of flavor, et cetera, to the beer. Um, and then if you look at the yeast, there are dozens of, of strains of brewing yeast, both lager and ale strains, which are different. And the yeast will also give a particular um, character to the beer. Some yeast produce more esters, which are aromatic, fruity compounds. Other yeast will produce more higher alcohols, um, which are other kinds of alcohol other than ethanol that, that also give certain character to the beer. And other kinds of yeast like, um, uh, you know, the, what we used to consider as contaminants uh, in beer are sometimes used the wild yeast are sometimes used to give very special flavor compounds as well to the beer. So the yeast is also a, a variable and, and many breweries are very jealously guarding their particular strain because they claim that their strain of yeast um, is responsible for the character of their beer. And they, you know, they don't want anyone else to use their yeast. So the yeast also yeah. provides some some say character to the beer. So the combination of those things and the, the water chemistry is also important. Nowadays, the water chemistry can be fairly easily adapted um, to the kind of style of beer you want. But historically, breweries would, would set up actually in a particular location because of the water quality. And so water quality is also um, comes into it and, and, and is a determinant on the, on the best kind of style of beer you can make in a particular location. So as an example, in the UK, um, the water is very high in mineral content, and this is good for ales. And that's why essentially the UK is known for its ales, whereas Central Europe, the water is much softer, lower mineral, mineral content, and that's really good for the Pilsner-style lager beer, to give an example. So, so that's a very brief overview then of, of how the ingredients affect the style. Are people trying to combine different types of yeast or genetically engineer them uh, to, you know, to make the, the kind of beers that they want? Yeah, so there is some, there has been work done on genetically modified yeast that will affect the, the character of the beer. And in fact, the yeast can make some compounds that are found in hops, like if you engineer it into the yeast. Historically, the use of genetically modified yeast has been frowned upon. 
especially in the craft industry, um, which is prides itself on being very traditional. And certainly in Europe, genetically modified yeast in brewing is, is a no-no. And uh, the, the customers, if they knew, because you have to put it on the label there in Europe, if you're using genetically modified yeast, most customers probably wouldn't wouldn't be drinking the product if they saw that on the label. So, but here in the U.S., it is there has been some experimentation with that, and uh, not sure how far that will go. Honestly, um, as I say, beer is still considered a traditional beverage among certain part of the population, and they'll only go so far away from from the use of traditional ingredients. Even fruit in beer is a bit of a stretch for a lot of people. Um, it's kind of becoming almost normal now, but some people still think that that's, a, that's outside of the norm. Fruit is for wine, not for beer. Huh. Um, I mean, the wheat may be genetically modified. Uh, the barley may be. And the barley, it seems rarer than it would be. Has anyone tried to make a soy beer? God help us or uh, anything there? Yeah, so there have been, for sure, um, if you look at other countries that don't have the European tradition, um, there's a lot of different natural traditional um, fermentation beverages found around the world that use alternative substrates to to the grains that are used in Europe and and North America. Um, And yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I'm not sure about whether there's a soy beer. I mean, soy is not honestly a very good, when made into beverages, is not a particularly good tasting beverage. <laughs> but there, there's a lot of, you know, proteins in soy that kind of make it, um, you know, not necessarily the most pleasant thing to drink. Um, but I'm not saying that, that there's impossible to make, to make soy beer. Um, as long as you have, you know, the, the key is you have to have sufficient carbohydrate present. So you have to have starch or or a sugar present to make a, ethanol. And, you know, you can ferment almost anything, but whether you're going to get a good yield of ethanol is always the question. And the nice thing about barley is the major sugar is maltose and brewing strains are great at turning maltose into ethanol. So that's the key. If you're not worried about getting ethanol, you know, you can ferment pretty well anything that is, you know, of, of animal, not animal origin, but vegetable origin and, and get some kind of fermented beverage out of it. Yeah, I've heard that uh, some beer producers are trying to uh, push the alcohol content as high as they can. What's the story there and what's the implication of doing that? Well, that's, you know, people that, that want really high alcohol beer you know, are pretty, are not, there's not a lot of people that, that are interested in that kind of market. Yes, you can, you can get into, they call it barley wine, actually, when once it's above, I think it, once it's above 8%, it's actually considered barley wine. It's no longer beer. But yeah, I mean, there's some really high alcohol beers, uh, you need to use a specific, either there's two ways of doing it, you, you have to have a specific yeast strain that is adapted to high alcohol it's more like a wine a wine yeast strain honestly rather than a brewing strain or you can you can just add alcohol to the beer afterwards fortify the beer to put the alcohol up um, it doesn't have to be all made by the fermentation so there but to me 
once it gets, as I say, above seven or eight percent, is not really beer. You below that, the alcohol doesn't really influence the flavor too much. But once you start getting up around seven, eight percent or higher, um, the alcohol really does affect the flavor. And for a real beer lover, to me, it's it's not it's not what beer should be tasting like. But there is, I mean, yeah. So it's it's possible to do this with specialized yeast, but not necessarily advantageous. I mean, the large breweries have been doing what's called high gravity brewing for quite a long time, where they brew till the eight to ten percent, and then they dilute dilute their product back to five percent or four percent before they sell it. Which kind of you know it it it, it takes the edge off the flavor for sure because they're just adding all this water back. So then it's very economical for them to make beer using this high gravity technique. But again, um, you're not going to be able to produce beer that tastes the way a good traditional beer does when you do that. What about the uh, beers like Ojules and some of them that have negligible or no alcohol? What's the story behind that? Well, no alcohol, like no alcohol beer or low alcohol beer um, is, uh, say, very popular in Europe. And uh, most uh, good-sized breweries there, they do have a a low, a no alcohol product. There are, in general, the way they do that is they just ferment the beer normally and then they remove the alcohol, um, typically with a distillation of the beer, a low temperature distillation that tries to keep the character of the beer. There are research efforts to try and, you know, use yeast that don't make ethanol. So you still have a fermentation process, but the sugar doesn't go to ethanol anymore. It goes to other things. Uh, that hasn't been particularly successful. But yeah, so non-alcoholic beer is certainly a trend. And yeah, so it, it's possible to do, and they've been doing it for quite a while. But the product, again, I think only appeals to a pretty, right now any, anyway, to a specialized part of the beer drinking population. Because if you want a non-alcoholic beverage i mean there's lots out there lots of choice yeah i just didn't know if there was trade-offs with uh, reducing the alcohol or almost eliminating it you know like bad trade-offs well yeah i mean the, it doesn't taste the same non i don't know if you've had non-alcoholic beer have you have you had some uh, once it's you know they at least 10 years ago i don't remember yeah so so they they, they definitely taste different it's a different beverage yeah so yeah, it's just a different beverage, and I, and I, and you know, breweries are are always looking to expand their market, and and they see this as a market niche for them. So, yeah, why not do it? I mean, I don't think you'll get the brewmaster drinking it, <laughs> but <laughs> but some people will. All right. Okay. Well, very good, uh, John. What's uh, how can people follow up and find out more about your work and your research? Where can they go? Well, you know, I have a company actually called Lachensia.com where we're, we're, it's, it's based on using wild yeast for making beer. And that's spelled, I'll spell it out for you, L-A-C-H-A-N-C-E-A.com. And it's a, it's a technology we developed at NC State. It's patented strains of this uh, wild yeast and uh you know, you can find out a little bit more about our research behind that if you go to the website. And um, yeah, maybe you're interested in trying some. You can always send me a 
a message. My contact info is on the website and send me a message if you're interested in, in trying some of this yeast. Okay. Well, very good, John. Thanks so much for uh, being here and talking about this. It's really interesting stuff. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. I hope, hope people enjoyed it. Yeah. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.